Welcome to Open Deeply Season 3, as we burn down shame and reclaim our power. The truths society pushes into the shadows are the very things that connect us. Truths around sexual authenticity, the wisdom of plant medicine, the pursuit of equity, and beyond. To open deeply, as Jack Cornfield says, takes tremendous courage, a warrior spirit. This unconventional path takes just that. So join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm clinical sexologist and sex educator, Sunny Megatron, and my co-host is sex-positive psychotherapist, Kate Laurie. Now, you might already be familiar with this week's legendary guest, Janet Hardy. She's authored and co-authored more than a dozen groundbreaking books about sex and relationships, including The Ethical Slut, which to date has sold more than a half million copies. In this conversation, Janet shares wisdom from her recent book, Notes from an Aging Pervert. We touch on everything from accepting the physical transformations that come with age to embracing the inevitable, profound, and sometimes bittersweet realities of death and dying. Her take on aging is insightful, refreshing, and brings unique clarity to the experience of growing older. But before we roll our conversation, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest, Janet Hardy. Janet spent the first three decades of her life believing that she was the only person in the world who got turned on thinking about spanking. She wrote her first book, The Sexually Dominant Woman, to help create a world in which nobody else would ever be that clueless. Janet's traveled the world as a speaker and teacher on topics ranging from ethical multi-partner relationships to erotic spanking and beyond. She's appeared in documentary films, television shows, and more podcasts and radio shows than she can count. Plus one, this one. She's narrated the audio versions of many of her books and looks forward to doing more. Janet spent a quarter century as the editor-in-chief of Greenery Press, the firm that she founded in 1992, which went on to publish dozens of books about alternative sexuality and relationships. While she has retired from being a publisher, she goes on writing, drawing, editing, and educating about sexuality. Janet lives the life of a kinky, poly, queer, gender-bent geezer in Eugene, Oregon with her spouse and a whole lot of pets. Now, there's one last thing before we get started. I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice, and they don't create a client-patient relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your healthcare provider. And all opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. If you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. Now here is our conversation with Janet Hardy. I am so excited to talk to you, Janet, and your book is amazing. So Notes from an Aging Pervert, which I'm going to read and reread and reread and reread because I am there. But in the first chapter, your very first paragraph, you start out discussing a technique you've taught your whole life related to BDSM. And which is pain processing and how it's a good technique to help in all sorts of different areas of your life. But towards the end, you say, quote, but all my techniques and practices fall short when I think about my own aging and especially about its inevitable endpoint, which is to say death. That may be one sensation that's too big for me to process. Whoo, that's a lot. So let's start out talking about this and how you chose to open the book with this sentiment. 
Oh, boy. The theme of the book has to do with things I learned throughout my career as someone who did a lot of BDSM. I was a switch, so I both topped and bottom. And also in my explorations to other, let's say, edgy sexualities, poly and all the rest of it, not only my personal experience, but my experience teaching. And I think if I had not done those things, I would not be nearly as sanguine as I am about aging and dying someday. So I was trying to think about what's a thing that I learned and that I taught that does not require a huge amount of explanation the way some of the experiences I talk about later in the book do. And I thought, well, a whole lot of people, whether they know it or not, have learned pain processing techniques, not necessarily in the BDSM community, but if you've had a baby, you've learned pain processing techniques. If you've done yoga, you've learned pain processing techniques. If you've done a lot of medical procedures, even if you've had something pierced, I remember the first time I heard a piercer say, breathe in through your mouth and out through the place that hurts. That's a pain processing technique. So because it was a pretty generally recognizable thing for a lot of people, and because a lot of people also know what it feels like when the pain processing techniques fail, and you just can't ride that particular sensation the way you had been up until it got that bad, I wanted to lead them into the idea that A, a lot of this stuff can be easier, and B, you're never going to be great at it because nobody ever is. That's how you start out this journey. And there's so much heart in it, but you really tackle some tough topics. I think one of the things I say there is that I can teach you how to do that in an hour or two. It's not rocket science. You can spend the rest of your life perfecting it, and you're never going to be so good at it that you can process every single sensation. I was just saying to Sunny before you came on how I'm 54, and I'm just watching all my especially women friends, <laughs> those who identify as women, uh, struggle at age 50. And I just was saying to a friend the other day, I was saying, feels like 50 for the second stage of life is like being in your 20s. It kind of for is. For the first start start of adulthood, where it's like you kind of don't know what the hell you're doing. And you can kind of look to folks that are older to help you with this, the second chapter. And it's just something that I'm kind of figuring out now. And so now I'd like to go into our, our next question. In this book, and in your previous book called Radical Ecstasy, that you wrote with Dossie Easton, you discussed your experience with consciousness outside of the body. And I feel like this is an important concept to share. It can bring comfort and it can bring wonder. For me, my experiences of this kind had brought me to a place of not fearing death. I still fear pain, but not the other side. And I'm hoping that you can read the following two quotes from your upcoming book that I've shared with you. I've given you some of the quotes that I'm hoping that you can read today. And I'm hoping you can read this next quote and talk to us about it. All right, here we go. Here's the thing about Tantra and BDSM and meditation and pagan ritual and prayer and so on. We're all climbing the mountain, but we're climbing up different sides. The peak of the mountain is the few moments you get to be utterly present and in utter acceptance, and your spirit explodes out of you and fills the universe. It's worth a lot of work and pain to get there, however briefly. One of the things I figured out during my various journeys into physical and emotional extremes is that our bodies force us to live in time and space. That's what bodies are for. However, I've taken a couple of trips out of my body for a millisecond or two and gotten to see that other existence, the one outside time and space where everyone goes when they've lost their bodies and nothing glues them in place anymore. Yeah, I've had a few experiences like that with either plant medicine or holotropic breath work. And I feel like I'd like to hear what you have to say. But as I said before, you read those quotes, they've given me a lot of comfort where I'm like, oh, okay. This is what it's like. Yeah. The thing is about those moments is that by the time you notice you're having one, it's over, which is frustrating, but there it is. Not a place where we get to be for any significant length of time, and I'm not sure we should. I suspect someone who spends much time there is not likely to be well-suited to living the life that we all live, which requires so much intellectual capacity. I was just looking at airplane schedules, and that's not a thing you want to do when you're in an ecstatic state. It won't work. Uh, but I guess where I am with that is that having an experience that I relate to as having been outside time and space changed everything I know about my lifetime, about how I live my life and how it'll end. An idea I go into in various ways throughout the book is that people don't go away. 
they're still here. They've always been here. They always will be here. Because when you think about life outside time and space, which, by the way, our little meat brains cannot possibly do, it is an impossible task because they're not designed for that. So you have to do it through analogy and through imagination and through supposition. But when I think about that, it really does seem like something I should look forward to. It's been happening. You know, I became aware of it during the scenes I talk about in the book, but it's happening all the time. I'm just too in my head to notice. And I think a lot of what we do in BDSM and similar practices is to make our brain so busy that it can't keep us out of that state of mind anymore. And occasionally we get to slip out of time and space for just a tiny bit. When I think about a moment, like like when I think of my own death, like I said, I'm scared of pain, don't like the idea of pain. But when I think about being on the other side, if I still kind of use my human lens, I think the thing that is the scariest of the other side is just the idea of losing everybody and everything all at once. It's not like just one pet or one person. It's like all of a sudden it's all gone all at once. But at the end of the day, you're not going to be in your normal human's brain on the other side. And so all of that is not actually what you would experience, I don't think. I think the closest analogy for a lot of us is to imagine infinity, which our brains can't do either. We can imagine bigger things and bigger things than that and bigger things than that. But if we try to imagine a universe in which we are atoms and then think of something that is big enough in which that is an atom, at some point we we just can't. And I think it's similar trying to imagine existence outside space and time. But if you do, or if you try, I'm pretty sure that our consciousness does not survive in the way we know it. I don't think we have individual consciousness in that space. I think a little bit of consciousness gets chipped off and put in a body for a a vanishingly short time. And then we go back to the existence that we've had all along. What scares me is not the dying like you, Kate. Obviously, pain that I don't that I can't say for it out of is not my idea of a good time. But I'm equally frightened of losing myself, of losing my ability to do the things that I like to do, my ability to be an active part of the world. I think a lot of older people just slide toward their end, getting lesser and lesser with each passing day. And that's what frightens me. You know, I would like very much to stay myself until it's time to check out. And some of us get to, and others do not. I describe at length the deaths of particularly my father, who did assisted suicide by the very liberal and humane laws in uh, Washington State, where he lived at the time. And I was present for that. And it was stunning. It was so beautiful. I think one of the quotes you have me read later is about that, so I'm not going to go into that in, in depth. But most of us... Unless we are medical professionals or EMTs, have few to no experiences of watching someone die. And the ones we have are usually medically mediated and not what we would hope for ourselves. So watching someone die with full agency and surrounded by loving people is one of the most profound experiences I've had in my life, equal to helping a friend give birth, which is basically the same process other way around. And I think for me, it's the not knowing which, you know, am I going to get to do it on my own terms or not get to do it on my own terms? And for me, I'm a sharer of experiences. I'm going to have the most kick-ass cool experience. No matter how it goes down, I'm not going to be able to tell anyone about it. Like, <laughs> tell anybody about it. No, you need, you need to have people you trust near exactly. you so that they can relay the information the way I did about my dad. I've pitched uh, a book to several publishers that would be an anthology of people writing about their experiences with uh, helping a, a loved person with assisted suicide. But so far, yeah. I haven't found a take. Oh, that but I'd really amazing. like to do that book. So we have another quote for you to read. And so in this quote that you're about to read, which, by the way, I love hearing this in your voice, like reading it in my own voice in my head it can, does not compare to hearing you reading your words. Well, at some point in the future, there'll be yes, an audio. Yes, we're, yes. we're not we're not there yet. But, oh, awesome. Uh, we definitely want to do an audio. Yes. So now you compare the words pain and aging in a really profound way. So if you could read this next quote and talk about it, that would be great. Sure. The problem with a word like aging is the same as the problem with a word like pain. It doesn't have a solid definition. It varies by mood, circumstance, and intent. 
we use the same word to describe the sparkly heat of a well-administered spanking that we do to describe a stubbed toe or an amputation, which causes a lot of confusion for those who can't comprehend why anyone would ever seek out such an experience. And we use the same word to describe the graceful, decades-long accumulation of love and wisdom that we use for the hateful calcification of body and mind, the slow downward spiral that has only one end point. So talk to us about that. Well, as someone who manipulates words for a living, I get very frustrated with situations where there, there's something I want to say and the word doesn't exist for it and I have to make shit up or string together a bunch of words that, and that is more true than anything of ecstatic experience. And both sex and death, I think, are or should be ecstatic experiences. We just don't have the, the verbiage for it. Dossie and I wrote a whole book, Radical Ecstasy, which now we're thinking about retitling because I'm not sure it's the best way to talk about what we're talking about. We're hoping to do a second edition soon. And throughout that book, we complain a lot about the inadequacy of the words we have to describe what we're describing. So when I talk about sex or certainly BDSM or aging or death, I mean, I'm not the best writer in the world. There are lots better, but I don't think anybody has really come up with the right words to talk about it. The Tao that can be described is not the Tao, you know? It's very difficult and very frustrating. The book Radical Ecstasy, I just recently read it, like about two months ago. Dr. Kat Meyer suggested it to me over lunch, and then I promptly read it. And I really feel, I'm glad that you're thinking about doing another edition, because I think this is the perfect time. I think people are talking more about the commingling of BDSM and Tantra now. I've noticed that when I opened up my private practice in 2011, to date, if I tried to get people to do Tantra, they really drag their feet. I think on one that, you know, if you want to use internal family systems language a little bit. A part of us wants deep love and intimacy, and a part of us is completely terrified to the extent that we will sabotage that, and we won't try Tantra, and we won't read a book like Radical Ecstasy. And I really encourage people to do so, because that book is fucking phenomenal. Thank you. And not enough people have read it. And yeah, I, I really encourage listeners to to read that book. It's been difficult with that. Part of the problem is that the people we see in alternative sexual communities are often very skeptical people. They are not big into the woo stuff often, nor am I for what it's worth. And the fact, once again, that Tantra and other advanced sexualities use verbiage that makes me really itchy was a big problem for me. I talk later in the book about an experience that some of your listeners may know about, because I've written about it several times, of having what I now recognize to have been a pretty significant Kundalini awakening during a Tantra class. And I think it was partly because I was not speaking the same language as the instructor, and I did not understand what had happened to me, and I could not find any resources to help me recover from that. And it became a much bigger problem for me for a long time than it needed to be if I had been properly supported in the process. Yeah, I feel like there needs to be more divisions of Tantra. I mean, Barbara Corellis has tried to tackle that with Urban Tantra and what she offers. Yeah, But um, yeah, you're right. And just when I delve into that spiritual realm, whether it's Tantra or whether it's going to a retreat center for plant medicine in Costa Rica or something, there is so much uh, talk of the divine masculine, the divine feminine. They never say the divine queer. I have a real issue with their ideas about divine masculine and divine feminine. Our instructor was in a long-term partnership with a woman who I read as butch, but to teach Tantra, she would put on femware. And that just made me really unhappy. I think one of the reasons the instructor did not give me good support is because I'm pretty butch. I mean, not compared to a butchy butch, but more so than I think you often see in as gendered a thing as many tantra classes are. I am mouthy. I'm just not the sort of drifty woo person that one expects in Tantra. And one of the stories I tell in the book that I don't think you have me talking about here, but at one point we were going to an event where the instructions said that we should dress in whatever makes us feel like a goddess. 
I have never owned a garment that makes me feel like a goddess. I never expect to own a garment that makes me feel like a goddess. So I went naked, figuring if I'm a goddess, I don't need to put on clothes. And that did not meet with a lot of approval, and they changed the rules by the next one. So then I went to to Hot Topic in the mall and bought some Wonder Woman underpants, and that was just going to have to do it. But as you could hear from that story, Tantra and I just didn't sync up very well. Barbara, I love Barbara for making Tantra accessible to the kind of people I'm talking about. I've taught a class back when we taught classes back before COVID. I taught an occasional class called BDSM Spirituality for the Left-Brained where I try to explain these terms in ways that those of us who don't do well with the conventional language can understand it. And that is me. I love so, that. We yeah, need more of that. Yes. Um, yes, and, yes. And yeah, there's a lot of people that would be would gravitate towards this if they felt included. Yeah, I may do a book about it someday, but there's too much <laughs> on my plate right now as it is. So Yeah. I also wanted to bring up that in the paperback version of this book, there's all of your original illustrative artwork all through it. And the way I describe it, it's a combination of raw and funny and tender and intimate and sweet. And so I'd really encourage listeners to buy the paperback version of it just so you can see Janet's original artwork. I mean, it's just, I think it's part of the book that makes me feel so comfy. It's part of the book that makes me just love it so much. And it gives lens to so much intimacy. It makes you feel so much closer to you to have that artwork in there. So I I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about your art. When I was little, I didn't know whether I wanted to be an artist or a writer. And then it's a long story, but I had a terrible crush on a teacher in eighth grade who fancied himself a poet and who told me I was a writer. And then after that, I was a writer. So that would have been, what, 60 years ago, not quite, 55 years ago. And I sort of let the art part, I took a few art classes in college, and then I got busy running my press, and I didn't do anything in the art area. But then I sold the press and retired from the publishing business, which gave me a lot more time and a lot more freedom. So I said, well, screw this, I'm going to start drawing again. So I've been practicing for probably about seven or eight years, going to life drawing classes and playing with different media and so on. And it finally got to where I was happy enough with my output that I started illustrating my own books. So the last several books I've done, I did a new graphic edition of my first book, Sexually Dominant Woman. And I also did my previous memoir, Impervious, Chronicles of a Semi-Retired Deviant. And both of those, Impervious only has maybe eight illustrations in it. Sexually Dominant Woman is illustrated throughout. And I've been having a blast. I've been having so much fun. I've been working on a series of drawings that I call the truth tellers that are portraits of people I perceive as having told unpopular truths about sex and about queerness through the decades. Our local gay bar is going to be showing it, which makes me very happy in November. It'll be the first time I've showed any of my work in a gallery style instead of in a book. So that's been a wonderful thing that being older and having more time on my hands has opened back up for me. Can't see it here, but I have a drawing board over there on the other wall of my office and I can just sit there and and draw my little heart out. I love that. I don't know what it is, but like I feel the same. Like I I think I'm going to be drawn towards creating, doing some sort of art. I just, I need the time. The hustle is real right now. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, believe me, I know. I got very fortunate in that I unexpectedly inherited a lot more money than I ever expected to have a few years back, which, boy, makes life a lot easier. (laughs) They tell you that money doesn't buy happiness. And no, I suppose you can't go to the store and say, here's money, give me happiness. But man, it clears clears the decks for whatever does give you happiness, like having time to sit at my drawing board and throw away drawings for several days before I come up with anything useful. So not having that, you know, you guys are both self-employed, you know, having that black cloud hanging over my head. I I had no idea that I would ever be clear of being poor or if not, if not poor, I don't suppose I was really poor for a long time, but having enough money that I don't have to worry from one day to the next. I didn't think that was ever going to happen for me. And uh, now it has. And this is 
It's sometimes very disorienting because I'm used to thinking about things in one way and instead they're another way. But boy, mm-hmm. that's a good mm-hmm. problem to have. I, I welcome <laughs> that problem. Please, universe, give me that problem too. Yes. Yes. <laughs> As did I. So I'm going to read your husband Edward's dating ad from back in the day. So it is by gender bent male in early 50s, looking for play partners and maybe more. I've mostly been dating men for a while, some hankering for a woman, but I'm mostly strongly attracted to butch women. Ideally, I'd like a nurturing top, maybe someone who's raised kids. So later in the book, you describe your relationship with Edward as queer platonic. So I'd love to hear more about that and your origin story and your relationship. Yeah, the the backstory on that, I actually knew Edward casually for many years. He used to run great dungeon parties in San Francisco. I didn't like him much. (laughs) And so when I read that ad, which honestly, my first reaction to it was, oh, somebody's pranking me because it was just so exactly a description of me. Uh, But I answered it because why not? And as we started to correspond, we began to figure out who the other one was. We were closely enough aligned that his previous partner had been Dossie's roommate. So we were very, and yet we didn't know each other personally at all. And what we did know about each other, we weren't too fond of. But we went on a date and he had changed a lot. One of the issues that I have to confront in the book is the fact that he's a bit older than me, not hugely, but he has some chronic medical issues that make him functionally a lot older than me. And I had to adapt to being with someone who was in all the ways that matter older than me. We are looking, I think I talk about this, at moving to a uh, continuing care community, which is all of three blocks from here. I can, you know, wheel my furniture down down the street because he requires help that takes up a lot of my time. And when I travel, which I do a fair amount of to teach and to promote, I have to find somebody else to come sit with him here and make sure that if he falls, there's someone here to pick him up and call the call the hospital if there's an emergency and all of that. So part of that is that Edward's sexual journey has been at least as extreme as mine. I think he is working on his own memoir, and I can't wait to see it all because I'm sure I haven't heard all the stories. And when we first got together, we played a couple of times, and it was fun. We hadn't quite found our groove as a couple, and it wasn't quite getting either of us where we had been at other parts of our lives. He's done a lot more exploration in psychedelia than I have, which is to say I've done none. (laughs) And he's done a lot. He's been genderqueer and pansexual and kinky and poly and all the rest of it for longer than I have. And as we experimented with each other, it began to become clear that that journey was done. For both of us, we did a scene on what I, I call it our honey asteroid because we didn't have any money. It was too small to be a honeymoon. We, we did one scene together there and um, we haven't since. It's an open relationship. If either of us wakes up tomorrow morning and goes, boy, I want to go out and get laid, then that's there for us. But we were married. In, we've been together since 05 and we were married in 08. And so far that hasn't happened. Occasionally, if I'm going somewhere that I'm going to see someone that I played with for a long time and care about, then, you know, I'll do a scene with them because I love them. And that's not a problem, but I don't seek it out anymore. And again, maybe I'll wake up tomorrow morning and go, boy, I'm horny. Let's go do something about this. But that morning hasn't yet come. I'm not saying it never will, but so far it hasn't. How long have the two of you been together? It's been a long time, right? It has. It's the longest relationship in my life so far, unless you count Dossie, which you probably should because that's not a live-in relationship, but it's a very dear relationship. But Edward and I met in 2005. I mean, met as as potential partners. And we got married in 2008. Okay. Yeah. So here we are. It's been, what's this? Just short, just short of 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So you speak a lot about your parents and how they died. Can you read the following passage about your father's passing, who chose when he died, as you're allowed to do where he lives in Washington, and perhaps speak on what it was like to witness his chosen death? Yeah, I certainly can. And anything else you'd like to say about your parents? Before I read this, I want to fill in a little bit of backstory that isn't in this quote. As I was headed up to my dad's house outside Seattle, I live in Eugene, Oregon, so it's it's a six-hour drive, I guess. It's a ways. I have chronic pain issues that I manage in various ways, but one of the things I use is cannabis products that have very little THC, because THC and I have stopped being friends for a long time now. So 
on the way up there, I was out of the stuff I was taking and I stopped at the dispensary and they were out of my usual brand. So they gave me a different brand. Okay. Fast forward to a Sunday afternoon when we have people showing up in the afternoon to complete this with him. And my back has hurt badly because I was lying awake a lot the night before, of course. So I took a little bit of this new stuff, put it on a cracker, ate it. And just about time, the rest of the crew, which was one of my dad's dear friends who is a nurse, which was great because it meant we didn't have to have a stranger in the room. Her husband, who was looking a little little green around the gills because that wasn't his job at all. My sister and me. Okay, that's the situation. And about the time everybody else shows up, I realize, oh, fuck, there was more THC in that stuff than I realized I am stoned. I no longer like to be stoned. It does not feel good to me, and particularly in such a fraught environment. But on the other hand, this is what it led to. Okay, he's just taken his draft, and the rest of the room has toasted each other with uh, a couple fingers of scotch. I don't drink scotch, and I wouldn't have anyway, because I have been stoned with alcohol on top of it, and I knew that wasn't a good idea, so I was drinking milk. As I watched, his face began to morph. First, it was a skull, then the face of an ape, then the face of an angel. Then it was my dad, my daddy, my father, and then a skull again. And the process repeated itself around and around and around. And then during an angel phase, I saw a disturbance, a ripple in the air, like the ripples rising from a hot highway over his left shoulder. The morphing stopped. He was gone. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. The way I end that story is to fast forward at a month to a small memorial service. And it's me talking to my sister who was also there and who was not stoned and saying, was that as transcendent for you as it was for me? And her response was, it was perfect. So it wasn't just me being stoned. It was like, this was an extraordinary, transcendent, unforgettable experience. If I were you guys' age, I would probably be looking at a career shift to being a death doula because I would love to be the person who helps with that. As it is, I'm probably getting a little too old and too surly to do good work in that regard. But uh, I have a lot of friends who are doing that work, and I think it is, it's angelic. It's its just so important. Yeah, I'd love to have the, a death doula come on the podcast and talk about oh, that. Be great. I, I, I agree with you. That one little part where you say, and then you saw a disturbance, a ripple in the air, like that is such magic right there. It really was. And it was fortunate that I saw that because it took a long time for him to actually physically die after that. Unfortunately, the way it works for assisted suicide, it's basically the same medication that a vet would administer to a pet if you had to euthanize a pet. But for a pet, you do it on intravenous injection, and it's over almost immediately. For a human, you put powder in a glass, you mix some juice into the glass, you drink this, I gather, very nasty stuff. And then they actually encourage you to have a couple of drinks of spirits after it, partly to get the taste out of your mouth, because who wants to die like that, and partly because it hastens the process. So even if so, he was breathing less and less frequently for three hours. I read later in the introductory material for assisted suicide, it can take up to 24 hours. So thank God it didn't. That would have been just unbearable. Knowing that he was not in there anymore, because it's called Shane Stokes breathing. It's what people do uh, in novels. It's called the death rattle, which is probably a more poetic description. It's easy to think that that is painful for the person experiencing it. Knowing that he was not in there anymore. It was just, you know, like settling. It was his body settling into death. It was not a thing to be worried about. So getting to see him leave. And at the end, I actually have a little fantasy about, I wish as people were dying, there was some visual manifestation of them leaving the plane and going somewhere else, like in a movie where they get more and more transparent until they're gone like a ghost. And so that's kind of what it was. It's like that ripple was my vision of that. And I think it would make life so much simpler for everybody else who's ever sat by a deathbed if they all got to have that. I feel very incredibly fortunate to have gotten to see that myself. I wish that for so many people. And I wish that we could have that access that more. My mother's death, which I talk about also, not at quite the same length. She died in California, and that was before California had assisted suicide. I believe you all have it now. And it was as close as she could get. She really wanted to have agency over her death. And her husband and I could not help her with that without putting ourselves at legal risk. And she knew that. But instead, what happened? She was dying of a COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And at one point, 
she coughed so hard that she tore something in her rib cage. And she was in a lot of pain. She called me up in tears saying, I don't know what to do. I can't get comfortable. It hurts anything I do. And her husband overheard that and called hospice the next day. And they came over and interviewed her and said, yeah, you're ready. And so she was able to die at home uh, with medical supervision and with her husband and me present. And that was as close as we could get. And the thing is, if you have somebody with COPD and you put them on morphine or another strong opioid, they're not going to last long because those things suppress breathing and her breathing was already not quite there. So I got to see the same thing twice with both of my parents, of them having as much agency as they could possibly have over their choice to leave the planet. And I feel so proud of them that they both did that. They both always said they would, but they both made it happen in just the way they said they would. And I will do the same, I hope, when my time comes. It's just a beautiful experience. Yeah, you know? it really was. Yeah, I I have not been that fortunate. I've been close to, to witnessing one that was as close as it could get. And it's just, whew. yeah. I have a number of friends who attended parties back in the AIDS era that were going away parties for people who were dying of AIDS, where they would get the right meds to take themselves off the planet. And they would do so surrounded by these people who were celebrating them and having fun uh, around them. That was a little bit before I moved into the Bay Area and became part of that community. So I never got to attend one of those, but I've had them described to me by many attendees. And it's the way it's supposed to work. It just is. For most of human history, we have not had all the ways to prolong human life that we have now, which in some cases is great. There are some of us who are not ready to go and we don't want to go. And we are very glad to have whatever medical support we have in staying on the planet. But there comes a point when it is no longer good. It becomes inhumane and absurd. And so many of our people die that way. And I hate it a lot. Deciding to die is tough enough. You should not have to pay for it by suffering until someone says you're done. Absolutely. So in your book, you talk quite a bit about how you struggle with your appearance and appearances and societal norms related to appearance, etc. And you draw the conclusion that, quote, heterosexuality lies at the heart of ageism. So we've got a couple of more quotes related to your thoughts on, on appearances. I would love for you to read them and then talk about both of those quotes a bit. Sure. I want to preface it by saying I'm not saying that heterosexuals are the only people who are ageist. Let's just get that real clear right now. You see it in a lot of gay male communities, fortunately not in the leather and BDSM community so much, which is where I live. And sometimes you even see it in women's communities, although less so. I've, been, I've encountered relatively little of that in the women's community. One of the things I think my gay leather brothers get right, or at least righter than most, is maintaining a culture in which their elders are considered hot. I love them for this, especially when they post photos of strong, centered, minimally dressed gray beards. I've never found people much younger than me particularly attractive, so these, those photos take pride of place in my personal fantasy life. And I think the women's community has always offered plenty of options for desirability as well. I've lusted after and played with fat women, skinny women, women older than me, women younger than me, femmes, butches, and women of all colors. And magnetism in that community doesn't seem to change with age. I note that my co-author and longtime lover, Dossie, who is more than a decade older than I, still seems to get laid pretty much whenever she feels like it. So talk to us about, about your thoughts on that. I think it has its roots in the privileging of penis-vagina intercourse as, quote, real sex, unquote. So obviously, the people with whom you can do that, whose vaginas still lubricate and who probably are still fertile, those are the people that are considered hot. I tell a story in the same section about having lunch with a guy here in Eugene who was about to teach a class on erectile dysfunction. And one of the things I mentioned to him in, in passing was the studies that show that lesbian women are way more likely than heterosexual women to have orgasms during any particular sexual encounter, which, you know, if you think that your hard dick is critical to everybody having fun, then let's pay attention to that statistic for a moment, shall we? Uh, because lesbians, <laughs> most lesbians do not have that as a built-in thing. And you, cis man, can go to the store and buy the same thing they use if that's what you want to do. He had never heard that. And I think there is so much unquestioned privilege slash prejudice slash whatever you want to call it 
in that belief that the only real sex is PIV, uh, which A, it is less safe than most other sexual encounters in terms of um, transmitting disease or pregnancy. I mean, it's basically the only way you can get pregnant by accident. If you want to get pregnant, there's a lot of other options. And so we do it because we think it's the best thing we can possibly do. I don't see much evidence that it is. I mean, I've had some fabulous PIV intercourse moments, but if a magic fairy flew down and said, Ding, you're never going to have PIV intercourse again, yeah, I'd be fine with that. I have sex toys. I have vibrators. I have dildos. I know how to use them, as do the people that I have played with. And there's so many other ways to have fun. And I think one of the things that BDSM does, at least at its best, is uncouple that privileging of intercourse as the best possible thing anybody can do in bed. I also think that we come really a cropper when we teach that to our kids, consciously or unconsciously. When we worry about our kids being sexual, what we worry about mostly is them getting knocked up or and or getting a disease. There's a ton of ways they could be getting each other off without taking those risks, and we're not teaching them how. Jocelyn Elders, you know, lost lost a highly paid position for even daring to suggest that there were other ways to teach kids to have fun. And it's just appalling that we we continue to promulgate that idea of PIV intercourse as the good stuff. There could be several books on this topic, you know? Oh, and I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. <laughs> I, I talk a lot about things that I think need to be talked about in sex culture in general and heterosexual culture in specific. And there there are books about these things that there are people better qualified than I to have written, but somehow they're not getting through to the people who need to hear them. And just that, that whole idea of appearance and what dictates what is considered hot is something that I think a lot about. And you kind of mentioned briefly that you noticed some of your friends that have been deemed pretty their whole life are actually struggling more with getting older because it's almost like they've lost some kind of power core or something in their mind. But yet, if we had a society that had a broader range of what is considered hot and sexy, then they wouldn't be going through that, right? Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, Being pretty is cultural capital. It just is. There's nothing we can say about it that is not that. And it's like losing a limb. It's like losing a cherished ability when you pass out of that part of your life when you are, quote, hot, unquote. And it makes them sad, and I don't blame them. Never having had that cultural capital myself, it's not a big deal to me. I think I've actually gotten, maybe not now that I'm pushing 70, but well into my early 60s, I think I was hotter than I was when I was younger. I was more confident in my body. I was more aware of my identity and how I presented myself. I knew how to work this machine that I was given way better than I did when I was younger, when I was trying very hard to be something that I was not, which was to say feminine. Once I got past that, it got a lot easier for me. I think of like, I don't know, the aging as not losing the hotness. It's just your hotness is changing form. And maybe it's an adjustment period to get used to like, oh, the new kind of hotness. But you're still hot. And, and in some ways, like even more so, like you said. One thing I do think is a problem for especially kinky people. Uh, I was just listening to a friend who's a decade or so older than me this weekend, complaining that the older he gets, the less able he is to find people to top him. Everybody wants the hot daddy to top them. Oh. But nobody wants an old bottom, apparently. And you know, that's a form of prejudice that doesn't go examined much. And I wish he had said that to me before I wrote the book, because I'd put something like that in there. But it's definitely true. So there's a lot of horny bottoms out there who happen to be a little older than the pictures of bottoms in your magazines. Go hit on some of them. That's my <laughs> advice to your listeners. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Because as they get older, they get better at being a bottom. I imagine yeah. so. Yeah. I think someone mm-hmm. needs to start like the horny older bottoms club and have <laughs> you betcha. and like hats and the whole deal. <laughs> I could connect you with that friend of mine. <laughs> I'm sure he would be out. <laughs> I love that. Okay, and I also loved this quote that I'd like you to read on gender and aging. The topic of gender and aging is quite fascinating. Can you can you read the the quote that we provided and, and talk to us a little bit about it? 
One of the realities of aging is the gradual blurring of secondary sex characteristics. Men grow nice little breasts. Women's body hair migrates upward to our chins and lips, and bellies sprout with joyous disregard of their owners' genders. Our bodies beg us to gender bend, but our histories too often shake a stern finger saying no. And one of the observations that led into that was me looking at videos and photos of younger men who are absolutely thrilled to gender bend, sometimes because they have a daughter that wants to play, you know, princess with them, and they're happy to put on the tutu and play princess. And sometimes it's just older guys who like to mix genders. And there's photos of a guy who's been wearing skirts for years. He's got to be older than me to judge from the photos. He has the most amazing legs I've ever seen. But that's rare. Most of us who grew up in my generation and those before, it was so forbidden to, particularly for boys, to be anything but masculine, that by the time they get to the point where the body is saying, hey, baby, look at this, you got boobs, have some fun, uh, they can't do it yet, uh, which is a shame. I have to tell you a story. One of the things that I mention in the book is that shortly after I wrote the chapter that we just read from, I had top surgery. We can't quite see it on the screen here, but they're gone. <laughs> and part of that was my breasts used to be my favorite part of my body. I had great tits. Once I hit menopause, all of a sudden they were they weren't quite to the point where I could have tucked them into the top of my pants, but they weren't far off. And they weren't fun anymore and they weren't pretty anymore. And I got rashes under them that were awful and I, I was just done. And so for years, um, I said, one cancer cell, just one, one iffy mammogram and you guys are toast. But that kept not happening. I am ridiculously healthy. And so eventually when, when I started having some money, I said, fuck, I'm not waiting for that because I'm not particularly dysphoric. And because I am not one of these women who has such enormous breasts that they cause physical problems like backaches and so on. I had to pay for it out of pocket. But the story I was going to tell you was during my consultation with the cosmetic surgeon that I was referred to by some trans friends. He's a little Vietnamese guy, shorter than me, and I'm not tall, about my age. And he had two medical students observing him during the consultation. So I'm sitting there on the examining table, you know, tits to the wind. And jokingly, I said, when we're done with this, I'll have smaller breasts than my husband's because he has gynecomastia. And the doctor crossed his arms over his own tits and said, oh, me too. And then he turns to the medical students and says, you know, in school, they tell you that only women have periods. But I'll tell you, my breasts are always really sensitive. And there's three days a month when I can hardly stand to wear a shirt at all. And I am just swooning with love for this man. I've just, I've just watched a great sex educator at work, one of the rare ones who is willing to go into his personal stuff to teach. And I knew I had found the right doctor. It was just so fabulous. And yes, my spouse does I have love that interchange. Yeah, I did too. It was, it, as far as I was concerned, I was his from that moment on. But yeah, Ed, Edward does have gynecomastia, has had for years, and he likes it. I was with him at a doctor's appointment once where the doctor commented on it. And afterwards, as we were walking out to the car, he said, he likes my tits. <laughs> <laughs> and I was always. Um, so, yeah, because he is also a gender bent person, he doesn't strut that much anymore. But back in the day, he used to have all these T-shirts that he had washed until they were paper thin soft and that he'd cut away every extraneous bit of material from so that he could show off his tits. And so those of us who pay attention to our bodies as they develop may find some opportunities there that we would not otherwise have considered. Right. <laughs> I love that. I mean, I, I'll have to say, you know, it's folks in their 20s and 30s are so much more likely to embrace being genderqueer and, and, and all of that. I kind of wish that folks in their 50s on up would kind of more so get with the program. I mean, when I look at myself now without any makeup in the you know, in the mirror, or what have you, my face definitely looks a little bit more androgynous than it did. And I actually think it's kind of cool. I feel like I look a little bit more like queen, like without any makeup, kind of like a medieval queen or something that. like Kate, that. Kate Blanchett as Elizabeth. That's, that's who you, yeah. Can you see <laughs> <Yes>. it? <sorry? laughs> I totally can. Thank you. And I'm just like, I really dig it. And I just, and it kind of bugs me that I know a lot of the folks out there would would not appreciate things like that in the same way. That's one of the reasons I'm glad that I'm able to speak to people my own age is 
Many of them don't understand what's happening now around gender at all, uh, even those who are not automatically opposed to it as, you know, that political party that we're not going to talk about today uh, is encouraging them to be. They don't understand it. They don't know what opportunities there might be for them in it. I know a lot of butches my age, a lot of butches, butches my age, and they're fabulous, but not too many of them identify as genderqueer in spite of the fact that to my eye, they would be what I would call genderqueer. But I don't assign other people their identities that way lies madness. I think it's all about modeling. And that's what you're doing to see examples of, hey, you know, this is this is a thing. This is a possibility. This can be for me, which we don't hear enough of. So I have to tell a quick story about something I encountered at Folsom. I mentioned very briefly in passing in the book, a woman I used to know when I was living in San Francisco who was still working as a professional dominant at 80. I encountered her again on Facebook just a a few months ago. She's now 96. And a mutual friend came to talk to me at at Folsom and to get my signature so that I could send uh, this woman a book because she is in it very briefly. And um, she showed me a picture. The woman looked astonishing. I honestly think that those of us who indulge in extreme sexual practices stay younger longer. I've seen it over and over. And apparently she is still playing. She has a 60-year-old boyfriend who comes over and takes good care of her. Oh, baby. Isn't that enough to give a person hope for the future? (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. So you close your book discussing the concept of good death. And you describe that as minimum discomfort and maximum love. So you also talk about laws against assisted suicide, how you see your life experience, etc. So I would love for you to read these following selected quotes and share your thoughts about them. This first one is everybody's favorite quote from this book. I can't tell you how many people have spoken to this one in particular. (laughs) I've come to think of my lifetime as a relatively brief vacation and my body as resort wear, perhaps a nice sundress or a pair of comfy shorts. Like all vacations, this one will feel like it's over much too soon. And also, like all vacations, I will return to my real existence. And I think the rest of that line is something about returning to my real existence with a sense of relief at getting back to the real business of my life. You know, I'll be sorry that it ends, but I'm, I will also be relieved to go back to the the whatever, because this is a, such an instant in time, this 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years that I'm going to be here. It's nothing. So whatever is happening, once I'm not stuck in that linear progression, I'm going to want to kind of get back to that and see what happens. Okay. I'm not much of a crier at the movies or theater. I may dab at a little moisture, but I can count on one hand the number of times I've dissolved into a full-on snotty, face-knotted-up, ugly cry. And nearly all of them have happened when I'm seeing what I call a good death. I was specifically thinking in this, I'm sure many of us have seen the last episode of Six Feet Under and also the last episode of The Good Place. Each of those just destroyed me. I cried for three fucking days after the end of, of uh, Six Feet Under because it showed that good death. We sh- we saw the matriarch, whose name is escaping me now, um, at her in her bed, surrounded by the people we've, we two have c- come to know and love throughout her lifetime, and she just leaves. And I just lost it. I was so far gone. And every time I thought about it for days after that, I was gone again, because there's something so cathartic to me about that good death. I suppose you could think of death as the ultimate safe word. When life gets too painful or strenuous or awful, the body or the spirit can stop the scene, which is why laws against suicide and against assisted suicide are very bad models of consent. Any top who ignores a safe word will find themselves persona non grata in their local scene, and rightly so. And what are those laws but ways to ignore a safe word? That just, when I I was like, yep, that really rings true in a way I never really would have thought of before in that way. This is why I wanted to write about the ways in which kink has informed my approach to aging and death, is it's just been all over it. I think people like to think of kink as something funny you do in the bedroom or in the dungeon, but it's more than that. It's a paradigm, a paradigm about power, a paradigm about consciousness, a paradigm about transcendence. And once you've been part of that community and that practice, even if like me, you may never play again, you're still swimming in that water and you always will because it just teaches so much and frames so much differently than the rest of the world frames it. And so taking away someone's 
not being respectful of somebody's desire to leave. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, frankly, I have to be careful. I love hearing you talk about all of this. At the same time, as a licensed therapist, I have to be careful because regarding this topic, because, you know, the law the, of California says that I am supposed to do everything in my power to keep somebody alive if they're a client of mine. And I have to abide by that. But at the same time, I love to hear your views on this. And I have the feeling a lot of people can resonate with your point of view on this, especially when they hear how you've witnessed a good death and what that can mean when it's done from a grounded, when that decision is made from a grounded, centered place. And the tricky part is that pretty much any states that allow the process also insist that the person be in their right mind when they make the decision. And that can be really iffy. I mean, if the person is suffering from advanced dementia, that can get very tough. And I don't know any answers to that. I think that's an unanswerable question because you don't want someone who is temporarily not in their right mind to be making decisions about uh, their, you, there's no going back from that one. Once you decide to die, you're, you're dead and you don't get to go, oh, wait, let's do that one over again. I've changed my mind. So it's an imperfect system, but I sure like it better than making people suffer. I'm curious, so we're heading towards the end of our interview, but I'm just wondering, is there anything else about your book that you would like to touch on or any thoughts, anything that you'd like to express about your book that we haven't touched on yet? One of the hardest parts for me about doing the book the way I did, going back to the chapter, there's actually two chapters about appearance. One of them opens with a pen and ink drawing of me naked. Get putting that out in the world was harder than I would have thought it was. I don't have a lot of body modesty. I've been doing what I do for way too long, particularly my upper body. I just, it's always been my chest, even when I had boobs. But I did my best to make it look really like me, cellulite and saggy and all the things that a woman my age has. Um, and having that out in the world is edgy for me. But on the other hand, my life as a writer has been always about writing things that scare me. So now I'm drawing things that scare me and there it is. You get really addicted to that kind of scary. It's a lot of fun. If something inside you does not shriek in terror at the idea of putting what you just wrote out into the world, why bother, you know? It's <laughs> well, Davis Sedaris in his masterclass on writing, he basically says, if you want to be a great writer, you need to write as if you have no skin. You need to put yourself out there in this most profoundly vulnerable way if you truly want to be a great writer. And um, when he said that, I just felt it so deeply. And it sounds like you're saying something very similar. I, I am. But BDSM is about that kind of vulnerability, too. And I suspect that's more of what I bring to bear on my writing is those skills of vulnerability that I learned in the dungeon not just for the bottom. And I want to mention that in passing. Being a top is extremely vulnerable as well. And if it isn't, you're probably not a very good top. So I'm not a thrill seeker in terms of parachuting. I, I mean, yes, I have gone parachuting because I'm not, not a thrill seeker and it sounded like fun, but I'm not the sort of person who is drawn to it, you know, extreme sports or any of the really dangerous things. But this kind of edge play, this kind of vulnerability in front of strangers, yeah, that, I'm, I'm all about that. Well, it's interesting for me, you know, since, I don't know, about 2020, I've had this weird thing that happens. It's happened maybe four times, kind of in the liminal space between dream and wake, where like a sentence will come in. And one time in that space, this, the sentence that came in was, your purpose is to reduce shame. And at the time, years ago, I thought that that meant sexual shame, because that's what I did for a living, right? And now that I'm 54, I'm starting to realize it's not just sexual shame, it's also shame around aging or shame around appearance and change and, and all of that. And I, I think when I see that image of you just being like, this is my body and, and talking about your own experience with appearance, it's like you're modeling and you're opening up a window for other people to let go of their shame and lean into their full authenticity. You broaden the scope. It's not just about your full authenticity regarding kink or BDSM, which is what people might associate with you. It's also leaning into your full authenticity about how you look when you're naked and, and how you age and all that. And I just want to say thank you to you for doing that extra work in that book. 
And my mother, who I resemble very strongly, once told me that the hardest thing for her about how I made my living, my mom was a therapist too, okay, I think you knew that. The hardest thing for her was not that I wrote the weird shit that I wrote or that I did the weird shit that I did. It was that I was uh, publicly nude, that she couldn't imagine that because she had brought up, been brought up with such shame about her body. And also, I would say therapists... Part of just the gig of being a therapist is the light is not on you as much. You know, it's on, in, in some ways, some therapists can kind of hide. Yeah, nobody nobody needs their therapist to be hot. It's, in fact, <laughs> for a lot of people, it might be an obstacle. A story about, I was teaching in Berlin. It was my first time teaching overseas. And I was teaching a tantric BDSM class. And I had a little model that I was rolling around on the floor with. We were both stripped down to our underpants. Um, a lot of fun. Afterwards, this couple came up to me. She didn't speak much English, so he was translating for her. And he said, my, my, my wife wanted to, you to know that she used to feel very, very bad about the way her body looked. But now she's watched you doing she's that and she doesn't feel nearly so bad there, about but it anymore. Yeah, yeah. I'm going, thanks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had not calculated on being the shock troops for body acceptance from Berlin, but yeah, I was happy yeah. to have been able to help. It, it was really a, a, a divided consciousness kind of a moment for me. Well, I think it broadens beauty. I mean, I remember being at Burke Williams Spa, which you can be naked in their in their little jacuzzi before you get your massage, and and there's just all kinds of different women coming into the hot tub, and and that yeah. day broadened my idea of beauty. Because I was just so used to just seeing Playboy. If I ran the world, that would be mandatory. Yeah, and so I, I think your picture in there, you know, broadens the idea of beauty. And um, I loved that picture. I saw it. And to hear that that was something that was difficult for you, to me, is just like, puts another dimension on it. Because that photo, that's the one that struck me. And I was like, that's Janet. And Janet is kick-ass. <laughs> and I love that picture. And So do I. Yeah, it Thank really, you. really struck me as like, well, you've got to be like, yeah, this is me. I'm so proud of that picture. But to hear your vulnerability nope. <laughs> is like, one, kind of mind-blowing and kind of comforting because it's like, gosh, we're all there in one way or another. And other people see us as rock stars, but we see ourselves as yeah. And it's just our yeah. own limited perspective. Yeah. None of us do this. Mm -hmm. Easily. I think it would probably be not very useful if it were easy for us. We have to go out on our own personal edges in order to allow people the safety to go out on theirs. I think when I saw that picture, because it really struck me too, I think the feeling that I had, uh, see, I'm getting emotional, <laughs> was Aww. love, you know, because... Uh, <laughs> what a nice thing to say. Um, because, you know, when I, so I'm, you know, so in my 30s, when I started my private practice, I'd even know there was a, well, it might not have been then, it, there was a point I'd even know about the ethical slut. I thought some of the things that I was thinking about doing professionally that I might be the first one, which was so wrong, but <laughs> ridiculously wrong. When I saw that, that, that picture is just like, yeah, it was just this feeling of love. When I saw that picture, it's just, I think just like Sunny, I'm not being super articulate right now, but it, it's just like, it was so honest. And I think you're so lovable. And um, oh, that, that's, it's really helpful to me to hear that actually. So yeah. thank you. How so? I'm curious. It's still edgy for me to have that in a book that's going to be seen by people I'll never meet. So knowing that it helps you in that way makes me feel better about doing that. I don't think it'll ever not be difficult, but I'll, it helps me remember why I'm doing it. I think the reason it makes me have that profound love is I just think that there's so many times that both you and Dossie have been anchors for me. And, and now that I'm starting to get older, again, you're an anchor. This book is an anchor. And I think that's why that picture touched me so much. And anyway, I just want to thank you for coming on our podcast and for writing such a touching, deeply touching book that's going to help so many people think about their own life, especially if you identify as kinky or in the BDSM culture, but certainly beyond that as well. I'd really encourage listeners to buy this book, maybe get a paperback and the audible version and the audible version comes out. Um, and yeah, I was wondering, mm -hmm. Janet, if you could share anything that you've been up to places that people can reach you anything like that. 
I will be at the Provincetown Book Festival Sunday morning, which of course will have be, been over by the time you get this on the air. So never mind. I'm planning to do some traveling with this book, doing readings and lectures in different places, insofar as travel is reasonable for me with having to take care of Edward and so on. What else do I know about? Dossie and I are just about to sign a contract for a companion book to The Ethical Slut that will be a sort of journal workbook called The Slut's Companion. So keep an eye out. I think they have a plan for uh, 2025. And of course, we're about to get to work on the second edition of Radical Ecstasy. I also have a proposal I've been working on for a book that is derived from a class I taught briefly before COVID called What Everybody Can Learn from Polyamorists, that would be about how to take the principles and values of polyamory and apply them to other relationships that are not necessarily poly. So those are the things I'm up to, plus I go on drawing and painting. And I hope to see all your listeners sometime soon. Do let me know when this goes up, please, so I can promote it for you. We absolutely will. I'm wondering, Sunny, did you want to have any closing thoughts too? I am just so thankful that I got to spend this time with you and have this conversation with you and read this book because I'm going to be rereading it. And just thank you for everything you're you do, welcome. you've done, you're going to do. Time isn't linear. Just all the things. All Yeah, yeah. you betcha. Yeah. <laughs> okay, ladies, I will talk to you soon, I hope. Yes, right. and listeners, okay. thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I hope you join us once again when we once again dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.